Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation is a tax-exempt 501c3 nonprofit private foundation. Your donations, sponsoring, and funding allows us to create content that raises awareness of African-American traditional music, African-American folklore, and the black experience. Check the link in the description box to donate. If you wish to sponsor podcasts, documentary series, or underwrite ads in our newspaper, The African American Folklorist, contact the email address in the description box. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening, good folks? This is Lamont Jack Hurley, and you are listening to another episode of the African American Folklorist. And today, very exciting, we have David Evans, master ethnomusicologist and folklorist, as well as a tremendous new musician. He has a long tenure of, of recording himself, performing, and recording our legends of old. He's of the last Mohicans that was part of that movement in the 60s where they were able to meet, interact with, hang out with, and record some of our earliest traditional music practitioners. And on this episode, we're going to go through one of his recordings called Old Hallelujahs, where he records Reverend Reuben Lacey and Congregation. Now, this is very, 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 very important and very exciting because those of you who, like myself, are from the Sun House camp should know this. And some of you may not know that the person who introduced uh, blues and performing to Sun House was Rube Lacey. As well as those of you who know Reuben Lacey, uh, not personally, but know of his music, know it's very hard to find more than two or three cuts that's been recorded by him, I believe in the 20s. Dave will correct me on when that was. But Dave has a whole album recorded of Reuben Lacey on vocals, his wife, Miss Ruben, Mrs. Reuben Lacey on second vocals. Dave Evans plays guitar. Uh, John Fahi, I believe, Fahi plays guitar. Uh, Alan Wilson on guitar. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Adela Booth, Mr. McCoy, and Mrs. Johnson on vocals, along with the entire Union Baptist Church Choir of Ridgewood. This was recorded February 13th, 25th, and 26th in 1966 and 1967. Uh, again, produced and recorded by Dave Evans and John Fahey uh, and by Mark Ryan Acoustic Archives with special thanks to Patrick Polk Folklore and Mythology Program of University of California. We're going to get into some of these songs and we're going to talk to Dave about the experience recording a mysterious legend of the blues. Dave, how you doing, sir? Just fine. Good to be with you. Always a pleasure. Yeah, this, uh, this is a tough time we're having, but uh, good to be on the air and connecting with people. Yeah, it, it definitely is um, privileged times. You know, uh, what they say is that we're at 
what they call it, social distancing, I believe they call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess uh, you would call this social distancing over the, the phone line. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. We, we found, we, because of modern day technology, we found a way to still stay connected. So Dave, let's, let's, let's jump into this. Hopefully we could bring uh, some joy, clarity, information, and entertainment to the audience that at this point majority of the folks in America and around the world are just at home. Let's talk about Rube Lacey, this mysterious figure of blues legend. How did you uh, meet him first and foremost? Well, of course, uh, he became not <laughs> so mysterious to me uh, from meeting him a few times. Um, the How I uh, came to know about him was through Sun House. Um, I had interviewed Sun House, uh, I and Alan Wilson, uh, in November 1984, uh, the same year that he was uh, rediscovered. And so we did one of the first lengthy interviews with him and uh, asked him about uh, where his style of music came from, uh, who were the people that influenced him. And he mentioned uh, a number of names, uh, James McCoy, uh, obviously a local guy, and uh, uh, Willie Wilson, uh, who seemed to have been a kind of newcomer in the area, and uh, Reuben Lacey that uh, he heard. And he really spoke very highly of Reuben Lacey. Um, it seemed... Um, I think Lacey was as much a role model of a blues singer for some as, as anything else. Uh, uh, Lacey had made a record in 1928, and that gave him some prestige locally. It uh, set him apart, I think, from the just average uh, plantation player. Um, actually, he already had a reputation in Jackson, Mississippi as an important a musician. He had a string band there and did a lot of blues. And of course, he was a great singer, too. So his record gave him a little bit of prestige. And I think some house uh, took notice of that and tried to model himself on Lacey. Well, Lacey uh, was not just a rambling musician. Uh, he didn't live full time from it. Uh, he probably could have, but he uh, worked uh, on a plantation uh, there, he was, he described himself as an overseer, so I guess he uh, had some kind of uh, supervisory role or something. Oh, wow. And he came came into, uh, I, I didn't go into that, and I, I regret not finding out more about what kind of work he was doing, but he would come in, have to come into Itabina, uh, the nearest town in Mississippi Delta, uh, pretty often, and uh, there, and sometimes he would have musical needs like you know, to get guitar strings or something like that, because he just played on weekends uh, around in the area, but he, he would play out of town, you know, mm. 20 miles from there, you know, so he, he'd play on weekends, and then uh, he'd work during the weekend, and he would come into Itabina uh, on his work from time to time, and like I say, maybe pick up guitar strings, and so he met this music store owner there, Ralph Bembo, uh, who had been selling records and uh, guitars and stuff, and um, 
he, uh, I guess, got talking with him and was impressed with him. Lambo had been promoting some uh, preachers on records, uh, local, local black preachers, and uh, wanted to get into blues promotion. And I guess uh, Lacey struck him as a strong uh, musician, strong singer, and a pretty stable guy, too. You know, a guy that you could... Right. So, wait, Dave, was Ruben a minister at this time this was happening? No, he, he was not. He uh, grew up uh, in, in, in east of Jackson, Mississippi, in a, uh, what seems to be a fairly uh, stable family, uh, you know, church people. And uh, but he was attracted to music, I think string band music, and he went on into Jackson, Mississippi and uh, led a string band uh, there and made kind of a reputation for himself, both among uh, the whites and the blacks in Jackson. And uh, then he came up into the Delta around oh, really only about a year or so before, around 1927. And I guess, you know, got this position on this plantation and played uh, music globally uh, on the weekend and was doing doing pretty well you know he was a bit of a local figure you might say okay so he he, he was a local hero um so the question well, well, yeah, is... yeah I, I think he was an important guy uh you could say and uh both in entertainment and uh, just in responsibility uh, in, in his work and uh, so uh, he, you know I, I think he kind of you know set a good role model and this guy Ralph Limbo that had the store uh, was an interesting character uh, too uh, my friend uh, Dwayne Moore has researched his life with his descendants he was an Italian immigrant uh, while he came as a child mm. uh, grew up in this delta town, you know, in the uh, grocery business the family was, and then he uh, had an interest in music, and he moved over into music, and he played Italian music, country music, uh, jazz, you know, the popular music of the day, and got interested in uh, blues and gospel music uh, as well by having uh, a lot of black customers in the store. Okay, so now... And selling, selling the records, too. It was a lucrative business, you know, selling those... Right. So why do you think if Reuben Lacey was, and I say if, just to set up the question, he was such an important figure in the, the, the black music scene that there's not so much... Uh, readily available information or music well, from him. I mean, that scene that was still very local or at best regional. As I say, he would play, you know, 20 miles, 25 miles out from uh, there. So you're a kind of a regional star. There were, uh, until Ralph Lembo came along and brought him to uh, Chicago to make his record. To be a star, uh, which meant then to be a kind of media star, you either had to travel beyond some kind of a circuit, a professional circuit, or have some 
media attention. So when, when Rube Lacey got a chance to make a record, that was a big thing. Very few Delta blues musicians had made records by 1928. Gotcha. So, uh, in fact, I, I think there were only two others. Uh, a guy, an accordion player named Walter Rhodes and a guy named Louis Black. He was a kind of itinerant musician uh, over around Cleveland, Mississippi, uh, about 25 miles uh, west of Itabino, where Rube Lacey was. So uh, they had records, and then by 1928, Lacey had a record out. And uh, it, it didn't mean that all that many people in the Delta owned the record, like, you know, one million sellers and nothing like that. Right. But, you know, if a few thousand people had it, it meant that all their friends heard it as well. So, you know, that, that became a prestigious thing to have a record out there. And then, of course, Charlie Patton came along in... 1929. Right, and, all, and now all, majority of these people uh, that recorded after from Charlie Patton down come out of the Reuben Lacey camp, correct? Willie uh, Brown, well, Sunhouse? Well, they, Patton and Lacey knew each other. I mean, Lacey remembered Patton at least, and uh, I thought he was you know, an important person. Uh, I knew he was because he had a very successful recording career and was uh, in demand. So, so their, their paths uh, crossed, and uh, Lacey thought well of Charlie Patton. I thought he uh, held himself well, you know, uh, put it that way. Okay. So now how did he get... You know, because a lot, a lot of blues musicians, uh, some did, had a reputation of being bummed, uh, just to be frank about it. And uh, I think uh, Lacey was not that sort and didn't want that reputation. Uh, and uh, so, uh, House also, although he did have a drinking problem, uh, you know, he, uh, he he was, you know, an educated guy and, you know, could hold himself well. And Charlie Patton, I think especially, you know, they, they would dress well and... Uh, you know, be able to assess the situation when, when they were hired for some event to play, like a party, house party, birthday party. Okay, so wait, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about that for a moment before we go into the first song. Yeah. Because, the, you know, we see in the 40s, <clears throat> uh, and I guess the late 30s, but the 40s through this, this uh, concept of the traveling hobo that's become um, marketed. You and I discussed this before. Um, and then we also have Henry, Henry, was it Thompson, I believe his name was? Henry Thomas, yeah. who was who was the image of this um, traveling hobo yeah. musician. So now what you're saying is, this wasn't just a marketing ploy. A lot of these... Uh, musicians of the time were what we would consider from at least in my era from the the, the 70s through the 80s you, you see it now more as a marketing ploy but back then the buskers really for the most part were if they weren't homeless they were living extremely modestly so this is what we had then and Reuben Lacey kind of separated himself from that because he was somewhat a well-to-do figure is this what you're saying 
to the first song and we'll continue this conversation the first song that I would like to play is actually the first cut on this uh, project which is What Shall I Do to Be Saved now Ruben was a guitar player but he didn't play guitar in this, in, in this recording no he, he gave it up uh, sometime in the mid 1930s I don't know probably his blues career uh, was in a bit of a decline just because you know nobody had money or maybe his style was kind of a little old-fashioned by the mid-30s. But uh, anyway, he uh, became a preacher. Uh, it was a fairly sudden thing, and it was an accident. It's funny you mentioned hoboing. You know, he had done railroad work and also had done a little bit of hoboing. I guess a lot of people did during the Depression, you know, when they were out of work. Right. And... So that might come back. <laughs> but uh, he uh, was uh, he, uh, a, a train came along and a, a brake spur or something, I think he got a brake shoe or something, struck him in the leg and broke his leg. He was laid up for a while. Mm. And he took, took that as a sign to give up that way of life, you know, the, the blues uh, life. Uh, and and uh, become a uh, preacher, go, go to preaching. Uh, and he did. He uh, started in uh, pretty quickly. So, ordained. so I figure he must have known, uh, known the Bible somewhat already, you know, before that, you know, to, to get into preaching. Right. So do you think, um, well, I want to ask this, but to my understanding of Son House, he grew up in the church and was ordained by 15. But there's a similar story where he, uh, I think, was it uh, something happened to Skip James or Willie Brown and he decided to go into preaching as well? Was was it, do you, did they discuss any? Uh, well, he was back and forth. You know, he was, a young preacher before he was a blues singer, and then he got attracted to blues. Then, uh, during the 1930s, for a time, he went to preaching again, came back to the blues. He was, he was always uh, back and forth with Son. And then after he moved north, left Mississippi, uh, in Rochester, New York, where he lived, he did some preaching there locally. Uh, I, I don't know that he ever really had a church uh, as such, but, you know, guest preaching. Got you. Well, Bible, if the minister was off guest preaching somewhere else, you know, he might kill him. <laughs> right. All right. So, who played the guitar on his first song? Uh, what Shall I Do to Be Saved? Uh, let me see. Uh, uh, that's me. <laughs> Mr. Okay, that, that's what I wanted to hear. So Dave Evans played 
behind Ruben Lacey in, in this sermon we're about to play. I guess I did. The, and and we, we're going to hear some uh, real roots right here. I, 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 before we, we mentioned it, but before we get into breaking some of this down, I, I, I want y'all to hear this to see if you can uh, pinpoint who which we already mentioned <laughs> was extremely uh, uh, inspired, I should say, by the style of singing. So let's go into the first song, all right? Okay. about that, Dave. Okay. Well, you can see, you can hear it's really strong sound. I mean, that's a old, basically uh, traditional sound. I mean, somebody might have composed it, but by that time, uh, it was a well-known, old, favorite uh, spiritual song. Uh, I 
played. I, I don't know. He has not become a what sometimes call a guitar evangelist. You know, uh, some blues uh, singer guitarist uh, became gospel singer guitarist, mm. but uh, Lacey did not do that. So I, I don't know if he back in his blues days if he played spirituals. He probably did a few. Uh, most of the blues singers uh, did have a few uh, spirituals they could do. And uh, But uh, that style that I played in was uh, a common uh, sound uh, for guitarists to accompany spirituals uh, with a slide device. I think I used a little pill bottle at that time. Okay, so you you you, you head, headed into my next question because uh, I, my question was going to be what what um how did you make the choice of 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 tune under that song? So that was a common uh, tune to be played while singing spirituals mm, by yeah, blues musicians. Yeah. Well, I had heard uh, that style by, I, I guess the first I heard probably was Blind Willie Johnson, but uh, then Charlie Patton played some pieces, spiritual pieces with five, several of them. And, um, the, oh gosh, uh, Fred McDowell uh, did too. So I, I had heard uh, all of those uh, on records. Uh, anyway, and of course, it seems on house we met him. So uh, I... Uh, knew that that was uh, could be an appropriate style for that type of music. But I hadn't, I, I guess I had been messing with it a little bit uh, on my own, but I had never played that for recording, I'm sure, or anything <laughs> in the public. So uh, I you know, made a few flubs there, but uh, I think on the whole it did pretty well. You know? No, you're being I, modest. That sounded not, great. Not getting it away, you know. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he, he was obviously the, the lead guy there. Uh, well, I, my question would be now: What did you guys practice that prior to recording, and and how, how did Ruben receive? You know, it's like he's like, wow, this guy really. You know, he he he's in it. You know, how did you guys? Uh, uh, interact in, in that moment and, and how did Ruben receive your playing under it or did, did he even not care about it because well, he was well, removed he, uh, from performing yeah uh, I don't recall that he particularly said anything I mean he, he seemed uh, pleased enough with it you know he, he didn't say we'd messed up or anything <laughs> like that uh, and so uh, he, you know he, he was just uh I, I was asking him more or less just for his repertoire, just to what he what he sings in the songs. Uh, I thought he had such a great voice. And in fact, maybe I wanted to. I don't know whether that was one of the first I recorded from him, but uh, I wanted to see what his voice sounded like. You know, I heard him on this uh, record that was uh, more than thirty years old, <laughs> years old. Uh, or more, so uh, it's we ask him to uh, sing a few songs, and then you get you get that you see what his repertoire is. Uh, whether he, for example, was mainly into the traditional spirituals or what he called old hallelujahs. Uh, these were 
songs that often the soloists would sing in the church, and uh, guitarists had started setting these to guitar. Blind mm. singers like Blind Willie Johnson. So uh, he obviously, from what I recorded of him, he liked that repertoire. But he also sang a few uh, gospel songs. These were composed songs. His wife had a large, uh, well, fairly large collection of hymn books. Maybe uh, a, a large black church gospel book. You said? Well, yeah. These, these would have been things like Gospel Pearls, which is a very uh, uh, strong-selling uh, book the National Baptist Association had published it in the 1920s, early 20s. And there were other publishers that published uh, songbooks. Uh, some black publishers, and there's mostly white uh, Southern publishers, although some uh, black songwriters uh, like Clevin uh, Derrick uh, would publish uh, with the white songbooks. I came out with the song Just a Little Talk with Jesus. And uh, Thomas Dorsey was uh, starting to put out songs, or soon would start to put out songs in the early 30s. So uh, Lacey uh, knew a few of those songs, and uh, his wife liked those songs. And of course, the people in his church uh, liked them, uh, too. Okay, so talk about a child that Do Love Jesus was a more current song of the time you recorded this. Uh, right. It, it was probably a song from the 30s, more likely from the 40s. And you'll see how his voice uh, is a lot more melismatic. It moves uh, up and down as he sings each syllable. He draws his uh, words out. You know. So you know what? Dave, let's go into that song right now. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm going to play it right now. Talk about a child, do love Jesus, yeah, it one. Talk about a child, do love Jesus, talk about a child, love the Lord. Talk about a child, do love Jesus. Here is one Talk about a child Been converted But here is one Talk about a child Been converted Here is one Talk about a child Been converted Talk about a child Do love the Lord Talk about a child been converted, everyone. Talk about a child, been converted, everyone. Talk about a child, been converted, here is one. Talk about a child, been converted. Talk about a child, do love the Lord. Talk about a child, been converted, here is one. So Dave, you, 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 you mentioned something. You, you, you mentioned that there is a difference in style from talk about a child that do love Jesus to what shall I do to be saved because there's a generational gap. 
Is, is, is this... well, yes, yeah, it, it, you could call it that. Yeah, it's a more recent composition. It's a composition of, of the 30s or 40s, and uh, by that time, uh, gospel singers were trying to uh, distinguish themselves from other gospel singers. Uh, They're not just singing the song, but they were putting more of themselves into it. And you can hear his uh, his movements from uh, one note to another. Uh, like that. Uh, that uh, it individualizes it uh, more. And his song and his identity with the song, uh, too, it seems to suggest that so I'm sorry I just wanted to ask you because this is very interesting considering um, if we go back to let's say the the, the mid to early late 1800s when allegedly uh, this uh, a particular styles of music be started becoming popular. We had the um, the songster, and then we had the Fisk Jubilee singers and other camps that started coming, and and we had minstrel troops. So, do you believe what what you're saying, or do you believe this this trajectory? Of, of of black spiritual and gospel by the time the the 30s came was was a sense of instead of uh choir we're, we're, we're looking at even if it's a uh five uh person group we we're, we're concentrating more on a lead vocal is, is this what we're saying, and is this what separates it? Well, well, well yes, too. Uh, again, in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, within quartets uh, and also choirs, uh, there was a lot more uh, lead singing. One person in the group would stand out, stand to the front, and uh, sing the melody, often in a very elaborated uh, form. Uh, and then the others would be uh, backup uh, support, you could say. Uh, and uh, that was something uh, wasn't entirely new, but it was something that was much more strongly emphasized in the, uh, this later era, the 30s and 40s. So Lacey, you could say, kept up with the times, but he had a great respect for the old repertoire uh, as well. And... Uh, you know, I guess you have to you have to adapt. You know, it's a style change, and as a singer, uh, he obviously did. Mm. No, the, I mean because this is interesting for for the hmm. I don't want to sound condescending, but for the average. Uh, person who appreciates just music in whole we can we can keep it specific to uh, black spiritual and gospels because that's what we're, we're talking about now that I, I i don't know if they would think of, about the fact that these are uh oh well let me rephrase that do do you believe these are conscious decisions by the performer the singer or, or this is some sort of organic 
um, evolution of the sound of the music? Well, uh, it's hard to say. You know, as the music becomes uh, a popular music, as people uh, in an audience develop an awareness of the genre, um, the way they did uh, with rock and roll, rhythm and blues, and jazz, and so on. Well, this happened with uh, gospel music, and you could have a career in gospel music just as uh, some people had had careers in blues uh, before. Uh, there hadn't been many uh, careers for black singers uh, singing spiritual songs except within uh, minstrel uh, troops or within jubilee uh, groups. and uh, But these singers, these soloists, singers or, or front person singers in a group, uh, lead singers, um, would want to um, distinguish themselves from others, you know, be, be stars, in other words, be mm-hmm. known uh, as individuals. Uh, and uh, so I think this musical style uh, enabled them to be more individualistic in their sound. Uh, and ultimately, you got people like Sam Cooke, you know, a real stylist. People that would set a style that others would even imitate. So, what do you feel that any part of this has to do with worship or it's more in regard to standing out as a vocalist? These are, the songs are what they are. You know, these are spiritual songs. They're songs of praise or songs of, you know, warning or uh, a lot of, you know, important uh, themes in these songs. And uh, I, I think the singing is very sincere. You know, you just listen to uh, Lacey. It sounds that way. I mean, he did in his blues. He only recorded two of them. and uh, So, uh, but he gave it his all. You know, when, when he sang blues, and uh, he really did when he was singing gospel. Uh, keep in mind, he was not a uh, a gospel singer as such. He, he was not known as that. He was known as a preacher. But uh, preachers would often lead singing in their church or break out into a spiritual at the end or even during their sermons. I, I can confirm that that happens to this day. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> um, so, speak, getting back to Lacey, which was a good segue on your part, Dave, mm-hmm. did you get the story of how he ended up in the church in California? Because he's, so, so was, was he part of that migration that went west? How, how did that happen? Right, yeah, he uh, he became a preacher apparently in the mid-30s and preached around Mississippi, uh, Arkansas, Missouri, kind of a regional circuit. He seems to have been as much a uh, guest preacher, kind of a circuit preacher, you might almost say, as one who had a church. Though he did have some uh, churches, too, that he pastored. Uh, and then he... Um, I don't know exactly how it happened. Got the call, you know, to come out to California. He might have 
come out to California once or twice on a guest thing, on an invitation, perhaps, and maybe made a good impression somewhere. There were a lot of uh, black folks moving out to California after World War II, uh, especially from Texas and Oklahoma, but uh, came from Mississippi and other parts of the South, uh, too. So uh, he wound up first in Los Angeles, where uh, I think some some of his folks that perhaps preceded him uh, out there. And uh, at any rate, he came out there and then was uh, maybe through doing a guest preaching uh, way out in the Mojave Desert in a town called Ridgecrest. There was a military ordnance station that was uh, established there uh, during or after World War II, maybe in the Cold War. And um, a lot of uh, like soldiers were stationed there, uh, and uh, then uh, a number of black workers were uh, hired to work there or in uh, related industries and jobs that sprang up in the area. So uh, it was a somewhat prosperous uh, community, although the most of the uh, black residents of Ridgecrest were kind of on the lower end of the economic uh, spectrum. But still, uh, but it was way out in the desert. <laughs> wow. And um, Bakers- Bakersfield was the nearest city, but that was a pretty good drive, an hour or more. And from Los Angeles, it was uh, a couple hours and a half or so uh, to get there. So uh, I, when I would visit him, I would stay overnight. Wow. At his place. You know, he had a room out there. I don't know. They might have stayed at a motel. I don't really remember. I know uh, at least one time I stayed at his place. So now you said Sun House introduced you to Rube Lacey. So was Sun. Well, he spoke spoke of him in an interview. Uh, They never did meet. Uh, That could have been arranged. Uh, Sun House, I think, came out to. L.A. Uh, after I had found Lacey, and I suppose if he'd had free day, uh, we could have driven out there. I think Lacey would have liked to see him. Uh, he, he spoke uh, he, he spoke somehow so, and uh, thought well of him also. You said he spoke well of Sunhouse? Yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought he was, you know, a good singer and a uh, nice person, you know. Okay, so is it safe to say that after the old days, so to speak, they lost contact, maybe spoke or sent letters, but they lost contact, so they were... Pretty much, yeah, he stayed in contact with Ishman Gracie for a while. Uh, Partly, he knew that Gracie had become a preacher. uh, Who stayed in contact with Ishman Gracie? Uh, Lacey did. Uh, she, Lacey had played in Jackson before he went to the Delta. Okay. And Ishmael uh, and Bracey and he, they were all running in the same circle sometimes, played together. Yeah. String instruments. Lacey could play mandolin as well a little bit, but he was a guitarist and singer. Wow. We, were you and able Bracey to... Bracey was a strong, strong singer too. Uh, so they... Uh, but, but they had been out of touch both of them uh, expressed an interest in getting back together but I'm pretty sure they didn't do it 
Wow. Yeah, not not to play blues, right? Right, just to right to catch up and and just yeah, I I I get it. Um, yeah, I'm sure they would have talked about old times, you know, in the blues and music, but you know, maybe other things too. Did Ruben drink? Ruben, no. Yeah, I think even the communion wine, I think, was grape juice. <laughs> like most um, were you able to see any of his sermons did you catch him in, in form okay. given the word yeah yes I did I, he, he used to drink he said he, said he used to we all did <laughs> <Talking about laughs> that blues is true singers. yeah well yeah, just, just about all did there, there haven't been one or two uh, teetotalers but uh, yeah uh, but he, he gave it up when he became a preacher Right. I didn't sign evidence that he, you know, kept a little bottle in his hip or anything like that, you know. Well, did, but sober guy. did you get to see him preach? Did you go to one of his sermons? I guess uh, I did at least one sermon. It must have been probably three or four because uh, it would always go up there on a weekend. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, I did. He, he was a good traditional preacher and uh, in, in the old style, you know, he'd work up to a kind of a climax uh, in the sermon and then it would end with a song and uh, a call, you know, the doors of the church are open, you know, that's an altar call. Uh, and uh, he, he also did some guest preaching, would have guest preachers, uh, sometimes there would be uh, two sermons, you know, service. And uh, so, yeah, he, he was a traditional preacher. And then Bruce Rosenberg did a study of his preaching. That's a whole separate book. Mm. Uh, and Lacey was the, you might say, the chief informant, you know, for uh, Bruce that uh, you know, right. recorded his sermons and studied their structure. Well, let me ask you this question before we go to the next song, because you mentioned when we initially began that yeah. R- Rube Lacey was of the first few to record in 1928, and obviously if he was good enough to record and he made a name for himself, he had been playing for some time. So in 1966, how old was Rube Lacey. <laughs> um, I think it was about the 1901, I think it was 65. Yeah. It was 65? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Okay, because that's, that's very interesting because in, in one of my, um, well, not one of my, my, uh, uh, show Jack Dapper, the Jack Dapper Blues experience. I start out with the Sun House song, and it, I connected to to my grandparents. But the point I'm trying to make is one of the things that I mentioned is that historians were telling people that Sun House was born in. 19 something I don't remember but he himself said that he was 65 during the first revival yeah yeah 1902 right um I think Lacey was a year older right so now because what 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 I'm getting to is it, it sounds like some of these 
guys may have been born a, a little earlier than what some well, could 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 be. Some some didn't keep accurate records. I'm sorry. Say that again. So some didn't keep accurate records in the family, you know, and they didn't have birth certificates. So you know, we sure. I guess. Because you and, and now I only ask this just the idea. Now, if he was born in 1901, 1902, so he would be um, 26 in 1928. So that's not far-fetched. Yeah. But right. just thinking about him sounding this powerful and preaching in 1966 in somewhere between uh, uh, 60 and 70 years old, that's, that's kind of amazing, don't you think? Oh, yeah, he was a strong guy. Why don't you go, go ahead and play his bio? So let's go into Somebody Touched Me, and then we can break okay. that down. Okay. Somebody touched me. Evans. Yeah. You was about to yeah, share something. Gone. Yeah. You were about to say something as the music started. Oh um, yeah, that, that was that was John Fahey playing the guitar. Uh, ah, John, oh. uh, John was a guy that was uh, influenced by 
Charlie Patton's recordings, and uh, he had always tried to play like Charlie Patton. I don't know that he ever <laughs> quite got it, but he <laughs> created something else uh, in the process, uh, kind of a style of playing. Uh, and anyway, he, he was a researcher, too. He was a fellow student. Uh, I had brought him uh, along with me, as well as my friend Alan Wilson, uh, who later was in the rock blues rock group uh, Can't Heat. Um, Alan was a very serious uh, student, you might say, of, of blues. In fact, he, he and I had interviewed some house together. So, you know what? Let's, let's talk about uh, that, Dave. How did this project come outside of of being mentioned by Sunhouse and things of this nature? How did this project formulate? Um, was was there grants? How did you put the team together? Who is uh, Mark Ryan Acoustic Archives and and the the Patrick Polk Folklore and Mythology Program? Talk to us about this and how this all came together. Well, I, I really don't know who Patrick Polk uh, is, but he was probably an, an archivist or a worker uh, in the uh, folklore mythology program. Some of my uh, tapes were uh, archived uh, there, and Mark, uh, who did the engineering work, the transfers, uh, and the edit uh, for this, uh, was an old friend of mine from the fifties, uh, uh, and in fact, uh, it was Mark who was with me when I visited him in early nineteen sixty six, uh, and we he was living in New Orleans, and uh, I we drove up to Jackson and met Ishman Bracy, mm. and uh, Ish Bracy, uh, we asked him about uh, Rube. Ruben Lacey, I'm not sure why, maybe we had heard that he knew uh, Lacey, and um, he, I, I knew from John House about, about Lacey, and I had heard Lacey's blues, and Bracey uh, uh, remembered him well, and uh, I asked Bracey if uh, he knew how to get in touch with him, he knew where he was, and he said he was down in California, uh, and he could... Uh, Asked some of his people in Jackson uh, about that. So, Bracey, uh, uh, I think we drove, uh, he gave directions, and we found uh, a relative of Ruben Lacey's who came, didn't have his address, but had the address of another relative in Los Angeles. And since I was based in Los Angeles, you know, when I drove back, I looked her up. Uh, I, don't think she was a sister. I believe it was a sister-in-law, um, and or it might have been a niece. Um, and uh, anyway, she gave me Lacey's contact information. I guess it was his address. I don't think I called him up before then. No, no I know he didn't because when we first went up there, it was quite a surprise to him. Uh, we just went to the address. I mentioned this to my friends, to Al Wilson and John Fahey, and they wanted to go uh, with me. Uh, so uh, we drove up together through Red Rock Canyon out in the Mojave Desert to Ridgecrest, and we had an address. It's not a very big town. And he was outside. Uh, this was, I think, 
kind of early in the year, but California is pretty warm, especially in the desert. Right. He's clipping his hedges. <laughs> and we asked if he was Reuben Lacey that uh, sung uh, blues, you know, and uh, just, you know, I, I think maybe I knew that he was supposed to be a preacher, but, you know, I wasn't right. sure, you know, having known some else who was <laughs> supposed to be a preacher, too. Yeah, I didn't know how much of a preacher he was. Um, so uh, he, he said, oh, yes, I did. Me, I used to sing blues, but uh, you'd have to, uh, anything about blues, you'd have to get in touch with my manager, Ralph Lembo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, uh, oh, well, 1966, this was 38 years, uh, you know, since he had recorded wow. through Lembo's agency. Right. Uh, and <laughs> well, I, I don't know. To what extent Lembo was a manager? I, I guess he was his manager for purposes of recording. Right. Put it that way. You know, he was, was his link to the recording industry. But Lacey uh, later or soon established his own direct link to uh, their art Labley of Paramount Records. He, he wrote to Labley uh, asking uh, to get in touch with Blind Lemon Jefferson, who was the biggest at the time uh, in guitar blues mm. and uh, and recorded for the same company for Paramount. And then uh, Labley put them in touch and uh, they, I think Limbo was involved in this too. And anyway, Brian Lemon came down to the Delta, uh, played uh, in some local schools uh, in Abena uh, and uh, did several shows, played in some theaters uh, in the Delta. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it made some money and went on back, stayed about a week or two. He stayed with Lacey. You know, Lacey was sort of his. Well, I have to ask you a question, Dave. I have to ask you a question. And um, it's, it's, it's somewhat humorous, but I, I really want. I, I need to know, and I, 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 I can only imagine some audience members would like to understand this dynamic. So now we're in the 60s, and, you know, the 60s pretty much changed the trajectory of America for so many reasons. Yeah. And we, we hear about a lot of the stories of um, folklorists, uh, ethnographers, ethnomusicologists, and historians, you know, combing around uh, these black communities from the turn of the century to the 40s. Um, but no one ever asked this, at least I've never heard anyone ask this, so I, I, I have to ask you, when you went to Reuben Lacey's niece or the, the young lady's house, did you call first? What was her response or reaction when this, did you have long hair back then? Uh, no, well, it was, you know, not, no, not long hair. Uh, you know, my thing down an inch, you know, it was not just trimmed, you know. <laughs> it wasn't Doobie Brothers long. In, 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 that, in that 50s style, but no, no, it was not what was called uh, long hair. I, I would let it grow longer than most people would, you know, and okay. then you go to a barber and you get a, 
pretty close cut. <laughs> Usually, you try try not to. You know, ask them not to cut it too close. But uh, the styles were changing at this time. But it wasn't like it wasn't as long as the Beatles. For okay, <laughs> they, they they were fairly conservative in those long hair days. You know, right. <laughs> so uh, what, they, you know, they 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 their hair was considered uh, long, but not extreme. Okay. It, it wasn't what, what we call hair like Jesus. <laughs> right, right, right. It wasn't Doobie Brothers. So, so what was the yeah. response of this black woman when when this white man comes and knocks on her door that she didn't know asking um, questions? I, I, I don't recall anything uh, particularly unusual. Uh, I uh, introduced myself, I'm, I'm sure, you know, and uh, to ask about uh, Reuben Lacey, uh, that probably he said what little I knew about him, that he used to be a blues singer, and I understand that he's a, a preacher now, uh, and uh, I was trying to get in touch with him. Uh, I guess I must have explained something about my interest in him. Uh, she was very nice and very open, and... Uh, gave me the information she had. She, uh, I think, had a little notebook somewhere, you know, with names and phone numbers right. and addresses. She, so uh, that's the, the one time I saw her, you know, just for that, I, I thanked her and, and uh, went uh, up to Ridgecrest. Uh, I'm quite sure I didn't have a telephone number. Uh, if I did, I might have thought that it was best to just go there. Uh, you know, I didn't know Lacey, what, what kind of a person he was. Uh, some people are very suspicious. I mean, just some people are. Right. And uh, they uh, don't want to talk with you. They'll shut you off, or are they think it's some nuisance call or some scam or something. Uh, and... You know, some people have had experiences, so you never know. Right. Uh, I always found that it was best to go uh, in person, take a chance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're there, and uh, you explain what your interest is, and they, you know, either invite you in or tell you to come back later at a particular time, or they kind of brush you off. Right. Well, you... So let's 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 kind of set up um, the terrain of you know from the early days up until the sixties because we have we have kind of uh, and and I hope I'm using this right a double conundrum because now you, you have on one side it is common for people to just come knock on your door whether they're selling something whether they're giving you mail or whatever it's more common than now right well, well it was back then you certainly yeah you had the fuller brush man and you know uh, <laughs> insurance agents coming around trying to sell policies I mean this was a common thing back then for uh, traveling salesman right so it wasn't foreign for someone to knock on the door and ask questions yeah and people delivered stuff too you people would still some would get coal you know to burn and uh milk or some milkmen uh, i think in two places uh most people so, the grocery store but, right but, uh, yeah, uh you know delivery 
where people live. And so it, it wasn't unusual to open your door and talk to a person if the person was there on some legitimate business. So, and not, not just a nuisance. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, some of them were trying to come up business. Full of freshmen. But you kind of expected that. You, know, you knew that they made their rounds. Right. So you, you, you had some comp up there. There used to be people like coming around and grind scissors. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I would like to go into hold to God's unchanging hand. Mm-hmm. And then we could talk about that afterward. Okay. Hold to God's unchanging hand, body. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things Transition. Not every thorn move can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Hold to His hand. God's unchanging hand Hold to his hand God's unchanging hand Build your hopes on things eternal Hold to God's unchanging hand Have not this wide was riches that so wrapped a lady king but seek to gain the heavenly treasure that shall never pass away Unchanging hand, oh, oh, God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Oh, to God's unchanging hand. When journey is completed. talk about that and 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 the the difference in cadence from the other songs that we heard that that's a song that would have gone well with a guitar and 
that same uh, slide style. I agree. Uh, it's, uh, I because uh, <laughs> he sings it so well, acapella. I sometimes wish that I had taken up the guitar and played with him, but you know his solo performances. So great too. That uh, I guess it's good just to have it. Uh, the way he holds out his notes with such a pure pitch, an unwavering uh, pitch, uh, and he can extend those notes. Very powerful, very impressive to me. Anyway, no, it is. I mean, you, you know, for me, and it's uh, it's kind of. I guess ironic because I've been talking to you and, and and we're discussing the the for lack of a better term trend change and style change of traditional black spirituals to gospels and quartets and 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 the cadence of how some of these songs are sang and and. Uh, lead singers being pushed to the front. Uh, also, reading a, a, a latest book on uh, Mahalia Jackson, how she uh, changed the trajectory of of, of gospel music is is just ironic to me that when I was a little guy sitting in these traditional churches all the way up to now as an adult sitting in these traditional black churches it these this is how it's saying <laughs> we we hear on the radio and in in the gospel reviews and and all in and stuff like this and the gospel awards the, obviously the music has changed to the the Kirk Franklins and the other uh people that that kind of modernized it but when you go to church this is what I mean a traditional church this is what it sounds like still yeah that, that's an old style of singing uh, it's probably one that uh came in or at least uh, I think the repertoire around it that developed uh around Oh, between 1900 and 1930, uh, it's kind of in that sanctified movement. And I think a lot of it had to do with uh, often setting the songs to uh, instrumental accompaniment, that uh, instruments, uh, besides maybe percussion instruments, hand clapping, uh, foot bang, uh, and tambourines, you know, uh, stringed instruments uh, started to be. Uh, used uh, in gospel programs and uh, in some of the churches too, uh, especially the holiest churches. So, and, what would uh, that had an effect on the on the rhythms? Uh, I think of the uh, songs. So, okay, more, more rhythm just... into the spiritual, and uh, it's maybe the particular types of rhythms too. Right, so just to um, set this up and clear it up a little bit for the audience, are, are you saying that? So we 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 went from the the vocals being the instrument to, in hand clapping to now th this style of of expression being accompanied by music, which changed the rhythm of the singing. Uh, yes, I think. I, I mean, to me. Those are, uh, that's a guitar rhythm. Uh, I could fit right easily with uh, that singing, uh, playing the guitar in that slide style. And I've heard uh, 
like uh, Fred McDowell and maybe not Sunhouse, but you know, Fred McDowell would be a good example. You could do that. I could, you know, I hear I, I hear a lot of Sunhouse um, in in the singing. Actually, so that's just me. Some songs kind of in that style too. He, he did one or two gospel songs with guitar, mm. and then he did some acapella as well. Mm. So, so what we, we're going to begin to wrap up this episode uh, for the audience. I did not state in the beginning of this. This is a series that Dave has honored us to be a part of. And we're going to go through more of Oh Hallelujah. And he has other recordings of of uh, 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 black spirituals that we're, we're going to talk about. But as as we wrap this first episode up, my, my, my question to you is what is the most interesting thing that you've um, received from this recording based on your studies and expertise? And what is the most interesting thing you learned about Rube Lacey spending this time with him? Well, uh, I had a great uh, respect for him. He was, uh, he was an interesting person uh, in so many ways, you know, as a blues singer, somebody who could reflect back on having been a blues singer and a fairly successful one on that small regional basis, you know, the Delta, and then as a preacher of uh, some experience, you know, I mean, he would uh, talk about uh, the Bible and about God, and, you know, and I, you know I, I was young. 22 years old uh, at that time. So uh, this was, you know, an, an older man of, uh, of real experience, uh, some that I could relate to through my interest in music. And then uh, I had always been interested in uh, the spirituals, too, and uh, loved them and had heard them uh, when I was young. You'd hear Marian Anderson and Paul Robeson, you know. Uh, that and come to know some of the spirituals through Sunday school, too. They were often used there. So, uh, to uh, encounter them really uh, in a living community uh, setting, you know, they, the people that had moved out there, they came from uh, lots of different parts of the South. Some came, you know, through family members, <laughs> what they call chain migration. And you could say, but a lot of it come from different places around Mississippi and Louisiana, and they met each other there and started a community. It was mm. kind of nice, you know, to, to see. And I guess that community still continues in some way up there. The, the Naval Ordnance Station is still there. It's, it's as big as it was then, but it's there. Well, let me let me ask you this this final question, especially since you've mentioned Paul Robinson and 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 uh, Marion. I forget her last name. Um, oh, oh Marion Anderson. Marion Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the the this the the early the turn of the century through the forties, the the popular 
black spirituals almost sounded uh, opera-esque, so to speak. So would you say this style of black spirituals that Reuben Lacey, uh, uh, Tommy Dorsey, and different others that we've spoke that was in the blues community and not in the blues community that we have not mentioned but sang in this cadence, would this be considered... Uh, what they say today, underground or more uh, subcultural? Well, yeah, it's, it's tra- traditional style, especially uh, Lacey's uh, style. Not much of his repertoire style was uh, traditional. And, uh, and when, when you hear him with some other members of the congregation, maybe we'll do in a future program, uh, you'll hear that. But uh, he was aware of modernizing trends through his life, and I kept up with it to some degree. Uh, the, uh, the style, you know, changed uh, over the years, you know, from the original spirituals to then they got finalized by the university singers, Fisk and Tuskegee uh, singers, and uh, but still retained a lot of the quality of the original songs, and uh, then uh, Paul Robeson and uh, Marian Anderson came along in the 1920s, um, and uh, they uh, sang in a somewhat more individualized style, but still in uh, a very formal uh, classical style. In fact, both of them did also. Yeah. I, I like that term, and, formal. Yeah, and, and, you know, they, they both could and did make their mark in classical music uh, very much. And, and uh, when you had uh, the uh, Dorsey-style singers uh, that uh, Dorsey could read and write music, he publishes songs, but most, a lot of the people that uh, sang his songs uh, didn't read music, or if they did, they didn't just stick to the written form, but they sang in using more traditional voice and voicing, uh, and they weren't so concerned with uh, exact pitch in, in you know, the Western scale. Slide between uh, pitches, and they, they'd use elements of the traditional stock. Right, so we we could say one was more of a mass appeal style, and the other one was grounded in culture. And and would, would that be a good assessment? Yeah, yeah, from a, from a kind of a fixed version, an ideal way to sing and to arrange the song and perform it, and you, you try to reach that ideal every time you. Performance, whereas in the traditional style and also in the gospel style with people like Thomas Dorsey, uh, you could vary it according to how you feel at the moment or your inspiration. And that, of course, individualizes it too. It makes it your performance. Right. Or even your song. Dig it. So, I I mean, this is groovy and, and, and I, I'm really excited uh, to go on this journey of these black spirituals and old hallelujah tunes that you've 
had the, the honor of, of recording, uh, I would like to, after thanking you, go out with a song, It Keep Raining and Storming on This Old Building, because that was his wife on the lead in that one, correct? Oh, uh, okay. I think so. She did sing with him some. She was uh, a very nice person. Unfortunately, she uh, passed away around the end of that year, although she didn't seem to be in particularly bad health. A very nice, quiet, uh, what people call a, a Christian lady, you know, and she uh, stayed kind of in the background, you know, uh, obviously. Uh, Reverend Lacey was the one that we had come to see, and but. You know, she would sing with him uh, when he asked her to, which she often did. And uh, she had this collection of these printed published songsters, too, that she uh, would sing the songs she sang when she would sing lead that came out of those. Mm. She, she was used to uh, reading uh, songs out of songsters. Yeah, they were in shape notes, but seven shape. Dig it, dig it, dig it. All right, so we we'll be getting into this. We're we're diving deep uh, again. Thank you, Mr. Evans. We're going to go out on this one song, and uh, good people, we'll see y'all next time. Keep it raining and storming on this old building. Keep it raining and storming on. This old building keep a raining and storming on. This old building I believe I'll have. Oh, the wind keep a blowing over. This old building, the wind keep a blowing over. This old building, the wind keep a blowing over. This old building I believe I'll have to move.